automating services and having a post-scarcity of services might actually be way more profound than post-scarcity of material as goods. But it's also much harder to understand because it's linked to cognition, intelligence, etc. Now we need to predict where are the limits of what we can achieve with AI. There might be even more profound forms of post-scarcity, of course, but because we might also want post-scarcity of happiness. Normally, we tend to think of happiness and well-being as something very different, but actually, a lot of what we consume is to make us happier, or at least we think it will make us happy. If we could just get happiness directly, that it might actually be the ultimate form of post-scarcity society. This is a conversation with Andrew Sandberg. To welcome him into Fawcett's community as an honorary fellow. Andrews has a background in both computer science and neuroscience, and he's a researcher at Future of Humanity Institute, where he focuses on low-probability, high-impact risks, estimating the capabilities of future technologies and very long-range futures. He's currently working on a book entitled Grand Futures. We had the fortune of getting a peek into this book, and is perhaps best described as the book to contain all books, with other great books serving as in-depth explorations of particular focus areas within his book. It is ambitious not only in terms of the length of civilizations covered, from history into the very far future, but also unique in terms of the depth and ingenuity, the love and poetry on every page. This conversation focuses on a section only of the book, on post-scarcity civilizations, but we also veered out into cognitive enhancement. If you want more conversations with Anders, we have another one that is on grand futures thinking truly long-term and on dissolving the firm paradox with him. You can support our efforts via Patreon or join our seminars by applying to them on our website. Enjoy. So my big problem is that I'm one of those truly unruly researchers who give professors gray hair and let's not even get into administrators and editors because I can't keep to one thing. This is sometimes very useful and sometimes it's actually a real problem. So what I'm trying to do with my big project, the Grand Futures book, is outline, okay, if we play our course right, how much can we hope for? So again, I'm totally failing even inside my own book with the expectation management, because I'm showing that various very nice things seem to be possible. And I use that to estimate a rough ceiling for the possible. There are some things that are most likely not possible at all, but if the things that look possible are really, really awesome, like a post-scarcity society, like much greater levels of well-being with really long lives and settling space, etc., etc., we have a lot to look forward to when it comes to the future. And that means that we have both had a good reason to want to get to the future and a good reason to fight very hard to make sure that the future comes about, that we don't go extinct prematurely, that we don't get trapped into and then some kind of Hobbesian, everybody's war against everybody else, or flub it in some other profound way. Now, the big problem here is, of course, that that project is ridiculously, uh, increasingly ambitious. Uh, and I find myself digging into the most bizarre sidetracks. This morning was spent reading up about evolutional language and I ended up with a little mathematical model and where I'm trying to figure out exactly how much divergence should we expect in languages once we set up the solar system. 
or how to generation ships or interstellar communications. And my very preliminary finding, assuming I did the math right, was there is a surprisingly small amount of the lowest common denominator Hollywood movies or whatever future counterparties that needs to be distributed widely to keep the languages somewhat correlated. That was surprising to me, and I don't really know whether this actually holds up. The, the deeper question is, of course, well, how much can human society diverge on very long and very large timescales? But that's not the focus for today. Now we're going to be near term or tomorrow, just the next 50 years or something like that. So in many ways, having this kind of Zoom meeting and being terribly embarrassed by coughing is a good demonstration of the fallibility of a lot of futurism. A year ago, if somebody had asked, so what do you think, Anders, you're going to do uh, in the foresight meeting in the next, uh, in one year, they would have, I would, of course, have predicted, well, I'm going to be somewhere in nice California, and I'm going to be sitting in a room chatting with people. I would not have expected a tele-meeting. Uh, tele then, of course, this is obvious. We're all doing it. <laughs> and I think most of us will also make the prediction that next year, this meeting might very well also be virtual, or at least have a strong virtual component. Some of us might indeed be in a nice room uh, together, but we have probably reached that threshold where enough people have enough tools that are useful and are getting used to them, that we end up making the virtual meeting a new standard. It just took a pandemic for it to happen. Now, the interesting part here is that there have been pandemics in the past, but they didn't trigger this technology because the technology wasn't really ready for it. In 1918, the Spanish flu certainly led to a situation where people stayed apart, but there was no way you could actually have meetings by using telegraphs. And perhaps if this had been an outbreak of source, and in that case, well, the technology was closer. But Skype was still young. Most people didn't have a good enough bandwidth. I think what happened here was it triggered a transition that sooner or later would happen. But there is also a patterning, of course, to this transition. We are still using tools that have been developed for a certain idea about how you interact in a corporate setting. And I'm astonished that there haven't been more innovation yet in these virtual meeting tools to allow all the versions and variations that exist in actual meetings. For example, uh, at Reuben College, a new college in Oxford, where I'm a fellow, uh, we discovered that doing this kind of voting by acclamation, where we all say I about some really boring point of order, didn't work that well over Zoom. It's a trivial thing. It, there ought to be a plug-in for this. And I have absolutely no doubt that there are some uh, systems that do have that, and it's going to emerge. But still... This moment then led to this phase transition. Conversely, we also have this interesting thing that coughing went from something slightly annoying over to a sign of disease. And, uh, every time you cough, you think, maybe this is it. Maybe I've got COVID. This is probably not going to last quite as long because there are many proble problematic uh, things in life where you simply can't sustain the same behavior. A few years back, for example, it was discovered that and cooking a lot of food produced acrylamide, which is not good for you. 
And for about one day, people stayed away from the fried potatoes and the bread in the, in the canteen. And then, of course, people started eating them anyway, because you don't change your food habits that strongly. There is a natural inertia that's very strong. And actually, avoiding cuffing is very hard. Actually, avoiding bread, well, it's tricky. You could certainly do it, but it's hard to build a culture where this is stable. So I think this is an interesting demonstration of the problem of making this kind of prediction about the future, because we have enough of these random events. And again, the COVID pandemic was very much a random surprise that was totally unsurprising, because everybody in epidemiology knew that those coronaviruses are constantly evolving, and sooner or later, probably it's going to be an outbreak. But it's a bit like rolling uh, 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 six uh, uh, ones on a bunch of uh, dice. It's a little probability event. It happens eventually, but you can't predict when it happens. Of course, the other tool for uh, people studying the future is to go for the really safe bets. So we might say, okay, let's look at trend forecasting. So everybody's favorite trend, like Moore's law, that uh, we can extrapolate that really far. The problem is, of course, that at this point, it's bound to be some pessimists in the audience pointing out, wait a minute, more so possibly can't continue because there are physical limits it's going to bump into. And indeed, uh, there are many other practical problems. So in a technical sense, the general scaling that was underlying Moore's law for started dying around 2006. We're not making the components of the ships smaller and smaller. Instead, we have to do other things. So the clock frequency is not going up. Instead, we're going for parallelization. Now, for many purposes, this doesn't matter at all because we're still getting more in computations per dollar per second, which is what we normally care about. Only the people further down into the actual Silicon Valley really care about the real estate. But it also changes the kind of computations that are easy. So long serial computations or getting more expensive. But if you can run something in parallel, and uh, thank heavens that neural networks and all the really cool stuff we're doing right now are very embarrassingly parallel, it works really well. So here, more slow in some sense continues, except that it causes a change in the kind of computations. Similarly, uh, back in 1970 or so, we had another import outbreak. Uh, back then, uh, up until the 1971 or 72, uh, there was an almost perfect correlation between GDP per capita and energy use per capita in uh, every culture. And economists would just say, Duh, of course, if you wanted to have a rich economy, you need to use more energy. That's dead obvious. Then the oil crisis hit and the curve turned essentially horizontal. We have still gotten richer but we're using essentially the same amount of energy per capita. We can quibble with the data, trying to see whether it's that we're reducing energy in some other places that are not counted. But the basic story is people got way more energy efficient at a very quick turn of time, I think this is an American expression. The interesting thing happening was the shock of the oil price going up, the, the realization that, oh, we're dependent on countries we don't quite like and uh, so on, really transformed it. Later, of course, other important things have happened to energy, both in terms of fracking, but also in terms of the, the now probably unstoppable avalanche of renewable energy from solar power. Now, the interesting thing is 
this is the kind of trend break that if you can predict it well, then you can make a good name for yourself as a futurist. The problem is, of course, most of the time we're just suggesting various trend breaks. And if one of them happens, we get interviewed about it. And then we sound very smart. And since you are smart and critical people, you will, of course, know not to trust futurists to get interviewed for having made that one lucky prediction. It's rather, we want to figure out useful things about the future rather than being right once or twice. So my approach in my book is looking very much at the outer limits of what looks like it's physically possible, looking at some lower bounds of what's possible by using exploratory engineering, like the work of Eric Frixler on all the technology. And that gives us a rough sense of where the borderland probably is. And then we can, of course, look at trends. But we don't really know whether those trends will continue all the way. We can give sometimes good arguments for it. Sometimes I think, though, it's better to give arguments why trends might suddenly change. For example, in demography, we have been for, that's another one of those hallmarks of uh, sensible futurism. You make a guess based on population growth. And since it's so slow, you can actually make it far, rather far into the future predictions. The problem, as demographers like to point out, is that while mortality has been going down and actually doesn't seem to be doing anything too weird, unless we get a really nasty pandemic, the birth rates are all over the place. And indeed, they have turned out to be much more flexible than anybody would have expected. Back in 1967, when James Blish wrote A Torrent of Places, the great science fiction novel about an overpopulated future, in my opinion, he was convinced that, uh, well, uh, having a 2% per year in a growth rate of population would keep on doing going until a very sudden disaster. And there was practically nothing anybody could do to actually slow things down because people have evolved to have a lot of kids. That's not true. It turned out, indeed, 1967 was peak uh, fertility for mankind. The overall growth rate was kind of peaking back in the back then. And then it went down. Because of female education, uh, the demographic transition in more and more countries, and to a large degree, cultural factors that you can't even predict very well because they're uh, just like television. You watch telenovelas and see high status people having few kids, because it's very hard to have kid actors on a telenovela and uh, so opera, and you consciously or unconsciously imitate that. And this is, of course, the bane of making these long term predictions. Where I want to go is, of course, can we make better decision-making? So understanding the possible causal parts is perhaps more useful for figuring out what we ought to be doing, as I like to call it, the next Tuesday problem. After you heard my talk, how does that change what you do next Tuesday? And it seems to me that there are various things uh, that we can do that are useful here. Figuring out what's at stake is very valuable. They're having insights both about what kind of value there are out there and how much of it is. is that is quite useful. For example, once you realize that, whoa, we can achieve quite a lot of wonderful things by having knowledge technology, then you want to go in that direction. So one of the obvious early decisions is we want to promote that. And then we can get into the more practical question, how do you promote that particular technology? Conversely, we can look for the, the nasty risks and start thinking about how do we avoid them? We might also go meta and say, hmm, do they have some general patterns in this domain that we want to pursue, like differential technology development? Can we foresee some obvious bad uses of a technology and figure out a way 
of receiving them off before they actually happen. And I might not be able to imagine, let's say, how to keep geoengineering safe. But if I see that as a problem, I might get funding surveillance, put out prices to get people to pursue ways of, let's say, cleaning up the stratosphere. If it turns out that the dust we put up there was of the wrong kind, incidentally, that might also be useful for uh, fixing things like uh, asteroid or supervolcanic or nuclear winters, which are other things we don't like. So one tool I've been toying around with here uh, is looking at if-then scenarios. So we can imagine an interesting future technology us. What are the preconditions for getting them? And then we can work out those preconditions and see more about the details. So we can imagine, for example, if we have a future where we achieve, let's say, Robert Freitas respirocyte, little nano devices that you have in your bloodstream that contain compressed oxygen and uh, would allow you to keep, hold your breath for 45 minutes, which would be super useful in sport. Very nice if you get a heart attack, really cool for scuba divers, etc. What does it take to get it? Well, first of all, you need the nanotechnology he describes in his paper, which is a fairly advanced one. And that nanotechnology would require, well, you need to be able to do mechanosynthesis of a fairly complex system, essentially the sphere of diamondoid that contains little pumps. You need to develop the design methods that allow you to do that. And you need to develop testing methods both virtual and practical, so you can make something that's somewhat safe. You also need to have the automated manufacturer that actually enable you to do this at scale. Well, what does these things need? Well, the mechanism pieces and automated manufacturing need the basic nanotechnology. So we can see a tech tree starting with simple nanotechnology leading to better nanotechnology, leading to better one, eventually leading to the manufacturing and the mechanism pieces that allow you to make it. But the respirocyte also requires things like testing and approval mechanisms, uh, which are total political software. They need to be in, uh, in the in software world of FDA and uh, the European healthcare agencies, etc. We also need to figure out a bunch of things about biocompatible services. Now I have a little tick tree here, uh, and I can analyze this in even more detail. It's also useful for thinking about priorities. So... This particular little tech tree was part of a bigger exercise I did about a year ago for a completely different project. And I ended up with about a dozen of these uh, ones. And then I just put them together into a giant, very, very confusing one. It looks very impressive on cover of the report. And I used uh, my graph uh, methods to try to figure out where are the crucial steps? Which are the steps where most of ways are going through? So... They told me, oh, here are the places where I really want to speed things up. Or if I think of some of the downstream things are really scary and dangerous, this is where we might slow things down. So, for example, uh, nanotechnology is a very key step. And understanding that dynamics in detail, well, that's, of course, part of Foresight Institute's history, and uh, understanding that or we have some other interesting examples like understanding it or pro-social emotions and the manipulation of them. This is in the moral enhancement part of my tech brief. And again, it's a powerful technology with some rather scary implications, but also some very good implications. Now I end up with this model. And ideally, in the best of all possible words, all of you and the various organizations would be making their own, and then they compare them and try to find where are the robust patterns. 
because that's the final part, of course, in the secret of actually thinking well about the near term, realizing that you can't rely on one big theory. Philip Tetlock famously pointed out that we're really crappy about talking about the near future. Why? Well, most of us have one big theory about how it's supposed to look, and it's mostly wrong. But uh, the better ones, uh, the foxes, tend to combine different theories. But of course, its main finding was it's still going to be fairly unreliable. The real value is not making that grand prediction, but the real value is coming up. Hmm, here is a crucial point that if I push on it, it's going to speed things up. Or I can slow things down. And uh, that allows me to then actually decide on what I do next Tuesday. So that's roughly my overview of my methodology, which has already been going on for too long here. I got an impression from the chat that there is a lot of way more concrete questions that maybe I should now go on to try to demonstrate that one can apply some of this thinking. What do you say, Alison? A lot of people uploaded the whole brain emulation questions uh, immediately. So let me give you like a few of them and maybe you can uh, decide which ones you take, want to tackle first. You have definitely done a lot of work on whole brain emulations before. And so a few questions that I immediately had is what kind of different scenarios are possible there? How is your thinking updated since uh, the roadmap? And how do they fit in with superintelligence, if at all? So whole brain emulation is sometimes called mind uploading. And I really hate the term mind uploading because it's both unclear what the mind is. And the whole concept of uploading is kind of linked to the traditional idea about uh, moving things between a small computer and a big computer. Brain emulation, on the other hand, is a bit closer, but it might still be confusing. So the basic idea is you take a biological brain, you scan it somehow, uh, you produce a replica in the computer, and if it's close enough, then it's not just a simulation, but it's an emulation. There is a one-to-one correspondence between what's going on. Uh, this is a bit like how uh, I can sometimes run programs for old computers uh, on my modern computer, because it actually simulates every circuit in the old computer. Now, if everything works out fine, then you take a brain and probably a body model and you run it in this new computer and you get the software replica of the original being. Now, if that would be me, then we might hope that that produces not just something that talks like me and quacks like me and walks like me and is a duck, I mean, Anders, but actually has an inner life, consciousness, something that is very, very similar. Not necessarily perfectly identical, because we're not even perfectly identical to ourselves day by day. We change quite a bit every time we go to sleep or uh, change opinion about a question. Now, back in 2008, we at the pulled together a little workshop that where people uh, know, who were interested in these questions were sharing knowledge. And we wrote a kind of roadmap where we sketched out what would it take, how much computing power is needed. That depends actually on how much is needed to simulate the brain. And nobody knows that even to this day. So we can do various models. We can imagine that you can use some kind of good old-fashioned AI model of every part of the brain on a very high level, where you can go down and say, yeah, it's actually vertical columns connected to each other. We can ignore the individual neurons, but we can kind of simulate it as an artificial neural network over to more biological ones, over to compartment models where you simulate every small part of a neuron and the biochemistry and voltages, down to molecular simulation, and heaven forbid that we might end up on an atomic or quantum simulation. And as you go deeper down in resolution, 
you of course end up needing more and more data and more and more computing power. That uh, means that if the brain is fairly simple, like uh, maybe some philosophers once believe, we should just scan the logical structure of my thinking and could run it on a very small computer, probably on a phone or an old 286 computer or something like that. If it's more biological, well, we're going to need a really big supercomputer by today's standard. And yeah, if it's quantum, we're probably not going to be able to pull it off. We don't know where the, the reality lies here, but we can make models. For example, we can look at Moore's law and make predictions. When will that cross various computational demands and get the probability distribution roughly? We can also start looking into what do we know about good modalities for measuring the brain? And this turns out to be a really key issue because Doing this without actually damaging the brain seems very hard. It might be that once we get the really good knowledge, we can actually do this while the brain is running. Some of you might have read Hans Moravik's Mind Children, where he has this interesting scenario where a robot is doing brain surgery on you, gradually transferring your consciousness into a computer, neuron by neuron. And at any point in time, you can press stop if you don't feel right. That's more of a thought experiment, I think, than something real. But Robert Freitas has an interesting scenario about using knowledge probes to do it. The problem is you need really good knowledge technology for it. A more near-term thing is you take a brain, you put it in a formaldehyde or in a fixate it in some other way. You slice it up, you scan with an electron microscope. You take the three-dimensional structure, you segment it using computer vision algorithms. You deduce the connectivity and end up with something that you went wrong. This has been done for the fruit fly brain, or at least half of the fruit fly brain. There was an amazingly good paper actually this week where they found that the mushroom bodies in that fruit fly brain were frighteningly similar in some functions to what we have in our brains. We have much more, but actually the overall schematic of the fruit flies and our brains on a sufficiently crude level actually seem to be somewhat similar. We just need to scale that one up a lot. And then, of course, you have a whole laundry list of can we actually get all the relevant information here? So I guess I've probably, I've probably gone on for a little bit too long about the details, but the interesting question, what has happened since 2008? Well, first of all, we created a bit more of a community working on this as an actual vision. We started writing papers. We started actually working a bit more on it. Uh, Kenneth Hayworth, of course, had been pushing uh, for developing some of these technologies for scanning. And back in 2008, we were kind of envisioning this as a, whoa, just imagine if. And just a few years later, these uh, technologies started coming around. Actually, knife-edge scanning uh, uh, microtomes, well, they were already a little bit of a thing. Now they're better. Kenneth developed even better techniques. And then connectomics became a fit. People who didn't believe in brain emulation as anything sensible still said, yeah, I really want to have that neural connectivity for my neuroscience research. So let's make the tools. And then the interesting revolution happened that we also got machine learning involved in actually making the tracing there. So Sebastian Seung has been doing a wonderful work on iWire, which is a project on understanding the retina. Now, the interesting part about that project is that first he tried to use filling algorithms and computer vision algorithms to figure out what's connected to what. But they were not quite up to the task. Human volunteers were actually fairly good at filling out ne- ne- neurons. 
except that postdocs absolutely refuse to do this more than six hours at a time. Then they start looking for some other net of you. But internet volunteers are weird people. After all, you find the weirdest people who like something and have them work for you. So what he did was just having a citizen science project where a lot of people were marking neurons in this data set, which is then useful for training algorithms to actually uh, do the right kind of uh, tracing. And this way, uh, we are getting better and better algorithms for doing it. So now connectomics is really rushing ahead really well. And we have the scanning methods, which are still too small, but uh, they're starting to become insect-sized which is good enough for to actually get good data. We still haven't even gotten the C. elegans uh, model to work. This is embarrassing because we know the connectivity for the 300 free neurons in the little nematode worm since the 80s, but we don't know the synaptic strength. The open worm and the related product, however, they're nice body simulators and you can run it. It's just that we need better ways of measuring the synaptic weights. The problem with that worm is that the synapses are much smaller than in many of the other model insects like Drosophilia or in mammals. So it's probably the wrong animal to start with. So getting to today, today we're sitting in a world where the Moore's law is kind of slightly more rickety than I would like it to be, except that it's still doing great in terms of parallel power, which is what you want for brain innovation. The scanning ability has scaled up rather nicely. It's still not enormous, but we don't need that because we need to test it out on insects and small brains. People's abilities to do uh, tracing on neurons is advancing amazingly well. Unfortunately, my friends in computational neuroscience don't seem to have yet been up to the task of automatically taking these connectomes and converting them into neural networks that actually runs. Actually, this is because of academic reasons. Uh, you ideally want to work on a network. You know what it's supposed to do rather than having this weird thing that you don't understand. But fortunately, I think this is something that's going to change now when the data is available. It's going to be sooner or later, some uh, grad student just can't avoid this. Like, what happens if I actually try to run? We also see some very big projects have interesting effects. So the, you know, the, the Human Brain Project in Europe both had a bit of interesting Game of Thrones in fighting, uh, which is what happens if you put all the neuroscience money on a continent into one big project. But it also did produce a, a, lot, a lot of very useful infrastructure for sharing models between different disciplines in neuroscience. Meanwhile, the Calvary Obama Brain Project in America focused on getting better methods for getting a lot of data out including things like the bar, DNA barcodes to identify synaptic connections, which is probably going to be really revolutionary in the, in the near future. We're getting some entirely new modalities of scanning neurons and in investigating where stuff is that actually probably is going to get the competition neuroscientists up to speed. So I'm happy to say that I think brain emulation is you know, puffing along faster than I would have expected in 2008. It's still slower than the rabbit of uh, artificial intelligence, which really got going its way in 2010 to everybody's surprises. But because before that, it just been sitting there munching a bit on a carrot, and that suddenly it rushed off and seemed to be running now in, in the direction of the uh, AGI. Except, of course, that we all know that AI has done that before, and it might very well start running off in a random other direction. I regard brain emulation as very much of a tortoise. It's 
a tricky problem. It's a big problem and it's moving slowly, but in a steady way towards bigger nervous systems and a deeper understanding of how to simulate things. So unless AI gets there to software intelligence first, eventually we're going to get there. All right. Well, that's a really good segue into Connor Lee's question slash objection uh, on superintelligence and whole brain emulations. Yeah. So I'm one of the AI maximalist type people. It seems to me both from the empirical and how AI progress is currently happening. Uh, I, I, I know about the other AI winters and such, but it looks to me not only are we making much more progress in, a, in AI towards AGI, but also like a much easier problem. At least it's core. It seems unlikely that a zeroth order optimization of evolution would have found the most efficient way of imp implementing artificial gener you know, general intelligence. And there might be you know narrow subsets of intelligence, like research that doesn't need locomotion that might be able to build in like a module way for them. So my question is: Is it even worth thinking much? Like I I got into this field out of my interest for neuroscience and uh, whole brain emulation, but I stopped doing that because I thought it seems much more likely that we're going to get strong AGI first, or even if we get whole brain emulation first, it, that would create such an increase in output of like so science that we would then get AGI probably the next year. So I feel like that AGI is like the much more long-term important thing. I just can't imagine a future where whole brain emulations are still important in 20,000 years. Well, uh, Robin Hanson actually had some arguments uh, for when it could be possible. It has to do basically with the economics of thinking. Uh, is it uh, useful to use lumpy things like brains versus some memory, uh, uh, a cloud, so to say, of intelligence services? And it's, of course, deeply linked to a real headache of a question. Well, what kind of intelligence is most useful? And I think yeah, that is worth investigating much more than it has before. Because traditionally, AI was thinking in terms of the AI, the robot. There is a discrete entity that is kind of close to the environment, that is acting in the environment. And uh, we just want to figure out what to put into that box and then have it mainly go off and do useful stuff. And in practice, of course, this is not how many animals even work because many animals are actually coll uh, collectives like antils and either we are in some sense collectives. And indeed, human thinking is a relatively collective thing. An individual human is usually fairly useless, but have a bunch of us together and we can do pretty amazing things. So, for example, Eric Drexler's uh, comprehensive AI services demonstrate that you could actually dissolve things and get a much more cloud-like form of uh, the AGI which is, the, we might argue whether we think that's likely or a good thing, et cetera, et cetera. But there is a bigger space here of possible structures. But the real question here is, of course, strategy. Where do I want to put my hours of work? And I think it's true that at first, brain emulation seemed to be a great way of getting to superintendents, but then they started taking off a fair bit. It might also be that, yeah, current methods are not going to run all the way. It's very unclear whether deep neural networks are the ticket. Uh, you might get into, of course, the Gary Marcus versus everybody else debate here, but I think he's got an important point. However, GPT-3 also demonstrates that in good enough fakery can sometimes be the real thing. So I would argue that, yeah, GPT-3 is totally faking intelligence. It's just borrowing the intelligence present in having read all of the internet and perhaps interacting with humans. But that's good enough to actually do 
things that matter. Being able to translate legal prose into plain English and plain English into correct legal prose, that's a darn useful to ability to have, even if you're not intelligent. So it might very well be that we solve a lot of these problems in a kind of lowercase AI rather than AGI, and that's already going to be pretty transformative. Now, you might say, yeah, but that's not the strategic important thing. I, I want to solve the world's real big problems, and that probably requires AGI rather than having an enormous amount of the descendants of GPT-3 up in the cloud uh, doing a little bit of fake intelligence and solving various narrow tasks rather well, even though anything you can name, you can get solved. Because typically we want to solve the problems we can't name. I think that is the G in the general intelligence that we're truly interested in. And also, so what's scared of? This is, of course, where the whole AI safety issue comes in. Because if it was just a lot of powerful, narrow AI, we could probably figure out ways of controlling that fairly well. Malicious uses, well, it's a tricky problem, but again, it's fairly unmanageable. Getting something that is absolutely unpredictable because we're not smart enough, oh, that's much more problematic. This is where value alignment comes in and becomes super relevant. So... When you get into that strategy question, the VBE versus AGI, I would say, yeah, I would totally go for AGI right now. However, VBE is also helping us understand a lot of neuroscience, which is useful for a lot of other things. After all, we want to be smarter. We want to be happier. I spent yesterday reviewing social pain, for example. We understand physical pain decently well in in the human organism. I would still just say, we're not that great at it, which is weird because this is one of the worst things ever. And yet we are not that great at managing pain. And social pain is kind of a more recent discovery. Oh, some of the social and emotional forms of suffering are running on basically the same neural substrate as some of the affected parts of the pain system. But this has been studied for maybe a decade, maybe a little bit longer. That's not much. If we understood this way better, we would actually be able to help a lot of people who are hurting tremendously. So there are good reasons to do and a fair bit of neuroscience too. It's just that from a kind of strategy standpoint, probably AGI will give you a bigger bang for buck right now. It might be that uh, the current boom peters out, uh, we have another winter, but in that case, you can always still join us in the neuroscience department. All right. Thank you. You know, Connor is saying a few things here on the chat. So I welcome those who want to engage more on that AGI thread to do so in the chat. If you don't mind, I will pick another one of the Bronian questions. Um, So let's zoom out there again and take it one step back. And we had one question that was by David Wood on post-scarcity civilization. How do we even get there in terms of coordination? And then afterwards, we can discuss exactly what post-scarcity actually means, if you don't mind. Uh We're taking it a little bit back, and I'm, I'm muting David Wood first with this question. Uh, David, you should be able to speak. So, uh, hi, Anders. Uh, I'll start off with the meta question you raised a few minutes ago, which is where should we be putting our hours of work, you know, and all the interesting things that we could be looking at. And the question is really, should we be looking at individual intelligences or rather coordinated collective intelligences, given that, 
a lot of what we might try to do as individuals can be frustrated if we are living in a very chaotic and uh, discoordinated world as we seem to be today, in which many of the sensible decisions don't get taken because they require people to invest in public goods, and we don't have the mechanisms to do that. The United Nations, the WHO, the CDC, the other Bretton Woods Institutes seemed no longer to be so effective. So to come to your topic of augmenting intelligence, do you have ideas for how we kind of augment the collective intelligence of these institutions? Is it something we should worry about? And can we make these institutions work better? Or should we be building new institutions? Like, for example, should the Foresight Institutes just get bigger and bigger and take over some of the tasks which currently are being held in these other rather venerable and ancient organizations? I think it's a really important question. So in my book, one of the original I outlined to have it in three parts. The first part was immature civilization. What are the problems right now and how do we solve them? Then there is the middle part, maturing civilizations. How do we become real super civilization? And then the final third, super civilization. Basically, what are the ultimate limits? Sensible people around the office pointed out, look, Anders, this is way too much already. So I cut down on the first part. That has to be a second book or something. But the only thing that remains is kind of a this chapter where I'm trying to look at the current predicament. And it seems to me that there are three things that we need to work the most on here. Now, the one is just reducing the really urgent X risk so we actually do get them. The second one is improving coordination, and the third one is improving insights. So this is borrowing a little bit from a diagram many of you have probably seen in Nick Bostrom's work, uh, where he's thinking about technology insight coordination. We have a little spacecraft that need to navigate an asteroid bent of various risks and problems, and you need to improve them in the right of, because you don't just want to get technological power without coordination insight, and coordination without insight is also going to lead us straight. Now, the coordination part is interesting because we are already a really coordinated species. It's actually quite amazing that we're complaining about our inability to coordinate because we are doing things that no other species of this planet can dream about. It's just that we can dream. We actually have ambitions that are way bigger than our coordination ability. The, the cool thing about human coordination is that we can create joint intentions. As a group, we can decide on certain goals and they become a joint goal. We can dis distribute tasks in a flexible way because we have language. We can remember them even over generations by having a cumulative culture. And we can even create incentive structures that make us do the right thing. If we were a Stone Age tribe, then we could decide tomorrow we go hunting and we decide on a strategy and we decide on how to divide the spawn so there is no quarrel after the hunt. That is amazing, and we can build better and better systems. And this is, of course, the story of history and civilization, but we have invented various tools for doing this. But in some cases, it's formal institutions. In some cases, external tools like laws. And in some cases, it's actual pieces of software. So when you think about Kickstarter, it's a coordination tool that I think is amazing on its own because it allows people who want certain things to happen to pull together resources, put them into escrow, be fairly certain that if this works, it's going to happen and then we are going to get a product. And that seems to work. And this seems to be roughly how we have improved our coordination ability. 
The problem is, of course, it's still running mostly on our squishy brains and we cannot handle more than 150 in uh, direct personal connections and scaling it up to handle much more would require a way bigger brain. We probably need to actually have software and have a hardware you know, they're, they're helping us with that. But even a slight improvement of that would probably have a pretty powerful effect on our social world. Indeed, you could argue that the role of it and, uh, and the other ways of keeping track of business cards have actually enhanced our ability to coordinate and build big projects tremendously. Now, where I want to go with this is that there, I think institution building uh, is a very important thing, uh, unless we can actually do a direct biological uh, enhancement. Social media also demonstrates that there are some interesting risks here. We certainly know that our institutions can be super dangerous. After all, if I were to list the most dangerous inventions uh, humanity have made, I, I would say governments is up there in the top five, probably above nuclear weapons. Because when you look at uh, situations where a lot of people have been killed, actually governments uh, killing their own or other people have been the cause. Finding good ways of keeping governments in check and behaving well is actually a rather urgent problem. It's just an, uh, as much of an alignment problem as uh, we have for AGI. Indeed, you could argue that governments are AGI being run as software on a lot of human minds. Now, some ways of doing this might be, of course, to come up with entirely new institutions. And I, I kind of like also the idea that if you have a good solution, you can expand it. This is a bit like Mark Miller's attempt at uh, spreading a good security uh, system in the world of computers. We took the wrong path down in the 70s, and now we're suffering from the bad computer security. It's possible to make secure operating systems and secure applications, but right now the economics is against it. What we can do, though, is, of course, demonstrate it for those few applications where it works really well, and then slowly expand bringing more and more into that safe bubble. And I think this is true also for be building better coordination. But the third thing here, the insight part is important. We want to figure out key insights rather early on. Nick uh, calls it the crucial considerations. If you're uh, following a map, discovering that you're holding the map upside down is something you want to figure out very early. <laughs> Otherwise, you will have gone far in the wrong direction. So we might want institutions like Foresight get the insights early to guide the rest. Sorry, this got a bit low wider, but it's a great question. Thank you. Well, it's a lovely question. I think John Chisholm had a question on what exactly, and that pertains still to what we discussed at the beginning, but I think it's actually interesting to talk about what exactly does a post-scarcity and civilization look like, and he had a little bit more of an expansion. So John, uh, I'm going to unmute you right now if you'd like to unmute. Allison, thanks so much. And Anders, thank you. This question may be so basic. Uh, don't spend more time on it if it's not of general interest. But what exactly does post-scarcity mean? Does it mean that the goods and services we know of today are at some point in the future in abundant supply free? What about the goods and services that won't yet have been discovered or invented at that point in the future? Won't those still be scarce? And won't there thus always be some goods and services which are scarce, no matter how far in the future we're considering? Our friend Catherine Moronic volunteered on the online chat that there might be levels of abstraction of post-scarcity. If so, are those levels well-defined? 
Uh, and also, are there any things that are inherently not post scarce? You talked a little bit about perhaps like zero sum preferences or something along those lines. I'd be curious to hear that too, if I may expand on your talk. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a very important question. And when I started writing the book, I had a plan. And of course, I need to write about post scarcity. And then I started looking into post scarcity writing, and I found quite a lot of them are annoyingly narrow. Because we basically talk about a state where most goods can be produced in great abundance with minimal human labor, so we're in principle freely available. But we're usually thinking in terms of material stuff. And certainly it's nice to have a world where you have enough phones and books and food to get by. That's convenient. But there is more to life than that. When you start thinking about it, economics is typically defined as allocating scarce resources. And so in some sense, once you achieve post-scarcity, you will know because economics disappears. Except that there are some resources that are probably always going to be scarce in various ways. So one interesting example is time. Time is a really weird resource. Every little voxel of the universe gets allocated time at nearly the same rate all the time. But at the same time, it's irreversible. If you waste your time, it can never come back it, in some sense, ultimately the non-renewable resource. Now, it's also relative to what you want. If I'm a total asket, I don't need that fancy food. I don't need the car. I don't need a lot of stuff. In that case, I might be in a post scarce situation, even though you might say that I'm actually living in poverty. And we can imagine somebody who really needs a gold-plated house to feel really happy. So the relationship there to what we can achieve and what we want is fluid. We could imagine genetically engineering ourselves to not want high social status and fancy stuff. If everybody felt that boiled rice was the most delicious thing ever and didn't want anything more, we would have achieved the food post-scarcity as long as we had enough rice. It's just that most of us would say, mm, that's perhaps missing a point here. Indeed, we want new things. Having a world that has new books or new inventions or new forms of art seems to be a better world than a world where everybody's content reading the same book and having the same kind of art. So when I started looking at it, it was clear that you, we certainly need a core to get to post-scarcity. We need the raw materials of various kinds. There is always a material on the pit. We need the energy to process them. And I think that is a crucial thing here that is actually going to affect what kind of post-scarcity you do. You need some space where the things can be located and done. And this is not trivial for post-scarcity because the nicest corner at Lake Como, uh, only one person can have a nice villa there. It doesn't matter that you know, with the right technology, you, know, you could build a uh, thousand villas. There is only one really nice, beautiful spot there out uh, with the right view. So we have various inherent problems even there. But more important, we have also a cognitive aspect of scarcity. Something needs to do the information process that actually perform the mental tasks. We also need the transformation ability, the manufacturing of the nanotechnology or the biotechnology to do the transformation. And indeed, we need the coordination systems that allocates things and make sure that the material is where the energy is, where the tools are, and then get sent to the person who really wishes for that nice villa at the lakeside. So... These things are already interesting and not trivial uh, because we can analyze them, of course, from a technical and physical standpoint. But there is also this fundamental thing that there are some things that you cannot make. 
you can't uh, go back in time. Attention is limited, the, 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 and the similarly social status is quite often a zero sum. In many situations, only one person can be coolest of the party. Now, it's a weird situation because I might want to be coolest among the academics of the party because I have the most publications. But some of you are just going to laugh at that because you're way better at uh, the bicycling, which is a really cool thing, and you don't care about the papers in nature. And of course, the boxing champion is thinking, but no, why are those nerds talking about biking and uh, publishing? Because I'm uh, the best in the ring. So this is one way we solve the uh, zero-sum game of social status. We find a lot of dimensions of status. In the best of all possible worlds, uh, we would all, of course, have our own favorite direction and only care about that one, and then we would always be best. In practice, it doesn't work like that, because what uh, we want is, of course, others to acknowledge us. So we have this weird game that we want to be in a kind of zero-sum game with other people, because we do care about being good, or at least belonging to a group that thinks they're good. And this produces an awful lot of strife, of force and complications. But it's also interesting to think about other aspects of things that are hard to allocate. There are some physics like radio spectrum that uh, is tricky to allocate. Again, we have only a finite amount of that. There are some things like randomness that actually the universe seems to be pretty powerfully generating. Uh, radio spectrum is scarce only if you have low technology. So when you get better technology, some scarcity just go away. I think that is a good way of also getting to post scarcity in quite a lot of ways. So I've been making a jumble here of a much bigger argument in the book that there are some forms of economics that you can't get rid of. But perhaps most importantly, it's also not about material uh, stuff. Services are probably even more important. This is where AI becomes irrelevant uh, because if if I just have uh, a lot of material goods, that's not as good as having somebody who cooks a nice meal for me. If I'm doing it, it's going to be fairly mediocre. I'm not bad as a cook, but I could be way better. It might be fun, of course, for me to learn how to cook better, but sometimes I just want a delicious meal, and then it's nice if somebody can do that. So automating services, having a post-scarcity of services, might actually be way more profound than post-scarcity of material as goods. But it's also much harder to understand because it's linked to cognition, intelligence, etc. Now we need to predict where are the limits of what we can achieve with AI. There might be even more profound forms of post-scarcity, of course, but because we might also want post-scarcity of happiness. Normally, we tend to think of happiness and well-being as something very different. But actually, a lot of what we consume is to make us happier, or at least we think it will make us happy. If we could just get happiness directly, that it might actually be the ultimate form of post-scarcity society. So I've been working on a lot of paper together with Thomas Moynihan, who's an awesome historian, about the history of wirehead. It turns out that people were worried about getting us get, being able to generate pleasure using technology long before anybody put any electrode into a rat's uh, brain. And there is this general concern that, wait a minute, getting happy the wrong way might be really bad. A lot of Greek philosophers spent a lot about nice afternoons arguing about what the right form of happiness is. But at the same time, it's pretty obvious that right now depression and bad feelings uh, are very common. A lot of people are not feeling as happy as we should be. We actually do have a bit of a happiness scarcity. It's also very different forms of scarcity because 
material scarcity, we can imagine moving around. We can start talking about the reallocation or UBI. But allocating happiness, it's not like I can, somebody can tax by a very happy mood and use some of that happiness to make some unhappy people happier. That would be a really weird world. It probably makes for a very fun science fiction story. But what you actually need is some very different kind of infrastructure. So when you sum, summarize the whole question of post scarce, it looks like, yeah, we can probably get way less scarce. We can probably solve a lot of the really urgent problems. But it doesn't look like we're going to solve all of including that some of the problems might be, yeah, we want a certain amount of friction certain amount of risk that makes stuff meaningful. If everything was guaranteed to be perfect, most of us would be bored. So, of course, a perfect world would also have the right amount of imperfections of things to fight for. And I think this is a constraint satisfaction problem that's actually unsolvable either with arbitrary amount of computation. So, uh, in practice, because of computational limits of the world, and awkward things like the light speed limit, uh, the, the entropy, you actually end up with a world where we are actually going to be a fair bit of interesting scarcities to deal with. But there is so much we can do on the way there. Actually get into a world that has sustainable and uh, non-carbon energy, and uh, that's rather useful. Being able to recycle matter endlessly, well, that's going to be pretty good for the planet. Being able to manufacture and uh, service practically anything. Hmm, I can see some uses for that. So I think uh, there is quite a lot of things we can do to actually flesh out postcards way beyond what people currently are doing. Because most people are still thinking about just making a lot of stuff. But it might be the making that is interesting. So Marx might have been right. It's kind of the means of production of post-scarcity that is where we want to figure out how to get them. Okay, thank you. And there's a lot of threads that, that were opened by that answer. Um, I do have a question by Alyssa who has to go now. Uh, Alyssa, let's hear it from you. Uh, just wondering, uh, which of this uh, cool stuff uh, that you've been talking about and has been published? So I know the book uh, hasn't been published yet. The The diagram that you talked about where we did uh, tech trees for these dozen different uh, future technologies, it, is that online anywhere where people can uh, dig into it, that? Or is that still oh. a draft form? Today, when preparing for this talk, I realized, darn, it's not online. It was a... I, better leak this because it's supposed to be part of another report, which I don't know whether it's public or not, but I think I, it wouldn't be very hard to put it online because I think there is something interesting in doing that analysis uh, pathway. I want to develop this as a pro proper tool and for that I probably need a lot of criticism uh, on how to make it better. Cool, thank you. Thanks for making me do it. Thank you, Alyssa. Um, and Alyssa had another question, if I can find it again. One of the questions that she was modeling was, what is wrong with the world in one sentence? What would you say? I think my answer would be that we are kind of the stupidest possible technological species. Uh, the problem is we evolve better, better brains, better, better abilities to shape the world and they coordinate. And eventually they reached a kind of critical mass. We got a cumulative culture. We expanded out of Africa. We took over the biosphere and we did a lot of stuff. It's just that our ability to foresee the consequences are, of course, quite limited. In theory, you could imagine that if our brains had kept on going and we become smarter and smarter, it would have produced uh, a much better outcome. Now, I think this is a little bit too facile, actually, as an answer. Because I think super smart people create super smart problems for themselves too. 
I have a lot of friends who would create a very smart, complicated problem. So it might be that the smartest piece would still have this problem. The, the real problem is an wisdom. Actually finding the right goals, doing the, the, knowing what makes you happy and actually doing it is something we're actually fairly bad at. So we're dumb enough to have a lot of power, but we're not doing stuff that actually makes us happy. We need to become a little bit better at that. And then I think we're going to get paradise on and off earth. Okay. So if you don't mind, I think we're going to like shift gears again. And uh, we're going to get back to the AGI thread. And I will first take Forrest and then I'm going to take uh, David Wood. Hey there. So uh, Anders, it's great to see you again. Been loving uh, some of the things you've been doing. I just, it's, it's, it's kind of a provocative question, but did you actually believe that there's any way to have general artificial intelligence alignment? So in other words, uh, is there any reasonable basis for us to presume any possibility of a solution to that problem? Or do you think that it's something that can be even achieved? Is there, is there any kind of uh, proof of an existence of a solution in that class? Yeah, I'm sorry I missed your talk about this uh, because uh, it is a wonderful provocative question. And my answer is, I don't know. I have a feeling that the general problem of uh, can you always do alignment for any AGI, the answer is no. In the kind of boring sense that the mathematician can always find a sufficiently weird function to break uh, some property demand of a function. But if we look at AGIs that humans can make, and the AGIs being put to when they work in the environment of Earth's surface, etc. In that case, I think we can get good enough things. Brad pointed out that he's not seen any workable proposal for human alignment, which is true, but we get good enough alignment. <coughs> the real deep question, I think, is do you have things like the four takeoff scenario where alignment has to be really perfect or everything is lost? Or is it that you have softer takeoffs or not? We don't know it. And I think there is good reason to work on it because it's just, well, it's valuable. Okay. Um, well, I would, uh, I'd, I'd love to confer with you at some point. At this point, I believe Me I too. have a general proof that there is no possibility of alignment in the general case, even for slow takeoff. But I don't want to divert now because that was another conversation. And I would love to confer and collaborate with you on that topic to, to test out that proof to make sure it's good. David, you are next. Hey, David. Thanks for summarizing the chat so nicely. Sanders, as you know, there are some uh, visionaries who say, don't worry about alignment with AGI because we will become the AGIs. You know, don't worry about robots taking over the world. We will be augmented and enhanced and be as the robots too. So in the grand futures that you foresee, is there a significant difference between, on the one hand, what comes next after the humans? That's you and me enhanced and evolved in some stage. And on the other hand, the AGIs, which have come from the world of a computer software, silicon software, or will there just be one category of which we, post-humans and AGIs, are somehow all together? So in writing the book, I'm kind of cheating because I can take a sufficiently high-level view to squint and ignore what are those things that are running these super-civilizations. Maybe they're post-humans, maybe they're AGI, maybe they're sentient cockroaches. I don't need to care too much uh, on the level I'm writing, which is, of course, very convenient for me uh, and writing this. However, from a more practical standpoint, I think 
we actually do care about humanity having the right kind of future. It's kind of interesting to note that if humanity gets replaced with AGI that still continues human civilization, we might say that's actually fairly decent. So on the other hand, if it's a completely alien AGI, that's bad. And if it's cockroaches that have nothing to do with our civilization, we also would say something important has been lost here. Now, the problem is, this is more of a practical issue. Can we say something about pathways that work and the probability of getting them or what actions do we need to take to get to them? Uh, so value alignment is the attempt, of course, of getting uh, AGI that would in some sense be a continuation of a civilization. Although we're, of course, hoping that once they exist, we want to continue our civilization. They will want to help us continue our joint civilization and then everything is going to be fine. The merger problem, on the other hand, this leads to an issue of both can this work again well enough to enhance us? So unaligned AGI is not a problem. Because this is a fairly common motivation people have for working on it. Indeed, I have a so far unpublished paper where I'm looking and I'm starting out with uh, Elon Musk's talk where he explains that he doesn't want to be a house pet of the AIs. Uh, so that's why he uh, wants to put money into Neuralink and, and holds us. And it's easy to find interesting examples, both Stephen Hawking and uh, many other luminaries have suggested that we need to enhance ourselves a bit smarter than the AGI. That probably is not going to work that well because we have a speed limit at the very least. Even if we have a lot of enhancements, it's kind of unclear whether we can improve ourselves faster than we can improve AGI because there are two very different technologies. Human enhancement and AI, although they share some technology in a common, they could advance at very different rates. And there is no reason to think that uh, human enhancement would be super fast because biology is really messy. It's like retrofitting existing institutions. Uh, if we think fixing America or the UK is hard, just imagine fixing the human body. It's even worse in many ways. So I think that approach doesn't work. The, the, the idea that we could join uh, the machines, however, is also tricky because, uh, again, you want to have a hybrid continuation of humanity that both philosophically is a continuation that we would say, uh, look, approving on our future cyborg selves and say, yeah, that's kind of me in the right way. But you also want uh, that link to be right. So you could have it facetious to say that according to the extended mind hypothesis, I'm already part machine because I have my smartphone and part of my mind resides in this one. But that means that if a paperclip AI takes over the world and turns everything into uh, paperclips, in some sense, I was on the winning side because I was part machine, because I had a smartphone. Unfortunately, it's not going to help me at all because me and my smartphone are all going to be paperclips. We didn't even have a meaningful link there. The real question is, can we link up with technology in such a way that we have meaningful control of the technology or meaningful influence of the outcome? And at this point, we're talking value alignment again. Although it might not be value alignment in teaching an AI program to behave itself, but value alignment in teaching a larger techno-social system to behave in the same way. So again, it seems like 
we might want to go to Neuralink and get our neural implants because neural implants are cool and useful. And I want to have one to control my weight set point and download Wikipedia results. And so I'm even more annoying in my answers. But it's probably not going to be able to enhance us so we're smarter than the AIs. What we can do is having the AIs figure out ways of making us smarter instead. Or maybe the brain emulation of ourselves where we can do a lot of software evolution and improve on ourselves. I just want to drop a very quick footnote in here on this discussion of can uh, AGIs be aligned with uh, human values or can uh, we control the AGIs? So I didn't see either the talk that Forrest gave. That's something I should look up. But I do note that Roman Jampolf, not quite sure how to pronounce his surname, Roman Jampolsky has just released free online a book-length paper on controllability of artificial uh, general uh, artificial intelligence. And he marshals all kinds of arguments why it cannot be controlled. Although the only way to control it is if we humans it become very much changed in the process uh, so that we'll no longer be recognizably humans. So I just wonder if others have seen that. I've dropped a link into chat. I do recommend reading it. It's full of references. Uh, maybe I knew, I knew about a, a third of them before, but there were two thirds of it, which was new to me. And so that was useful. I think that I've seen that one and it also contains an interesting discussion on AI wireheading, which actually turned into the kind of capstone of my paper of the history of wireheading, because it turns out that the problem of sending signals to a pleasure center also links up with the problem, of course, of making aligned AI. It all comes together in an important way because we want to control complex adaptive systems. And that's very tough. But getting your government working, avoiding addiction, and getting aligned AI, they might actually deep down be connected. There might be some universal similarities here we might want to solve. All right. Thank you so much. I'm still asking for other questions to be uploaded. I certainly agree on the uh, on your last point. We had a uh, recent discussion with uh, Mark Miller on civilization of superintelligence and in which way different institutions and different organizations are intelligences and how we may align them, what we can learn from that uh, for alignment of superintelligences, if anything. One thing, which is part of the reason why we got connected in the first place, which is just one thing that I want to make everyone aware of because I haven't talked about it yet, and hopefully it's of interest, is your three bets on convergence. And I know that there are a lot to get into, but I, it was certainly something that blew my mind when I first heard about it. And I'm sure that a lot of people have a lot of things to say or think about that in the chat. So if you just want to tickle us with what they are, and then uh, we can see if we have time to further discuss them. Yeah, so so this all began a few years back when Peter Akersley, who many of you know, uh, was visiting us at FHI, and he got into a discussion with Toby Ward, so we wrote a bet on our whiteboard. The bet was basically, by the point when we meet independently evolved intelligent life in the universe, uh, both we and the aliens are going to have stopped making meaningful technological progress. And Peter thinks, no, actually, at this point, we're both still building new stuff. We're still inventing new stuff. But Toby felt, no, actually, this is probably so far in the future that we are going to have leveled up. We have achieved roughly everything that can be achieved technologically. So that's kind of an interesting, bold claim about the nature of technology. Is it totally open-ended or is there some limit? Of course, obviously, we can imagine cars with any integer number of fins on the car. We can uh, do a lot of pointless variations. 
I'm sure there's an infinite number of computer programs to write. So in some sense, you can always add more progress. But do we do fundamentally different things? In some sense, meaningful technologies, the technology you would actually want to tell the rest of the universe that you had invented, then that might be a relative finite set. Now, this is on its own a really fun question, but then we started thinking, or when similar bets like that? So when second bet ended up being, well, what about science? Is there a limit to science? It could be that by the time we have expanded so far that we reach the end of greatness scale of the universe. So now we have a lot of samples of the, the galactic superclusters. We can compare them. We've seen a bunch of quasars. At that point, maybe our science would have kind of stopped doing empirical stuff because we had basically seen examples of everything. There are open questions, of course, in mathematics, but basically you don't need to do much empirical stuff. Or it could be that, yeah, you're still doing, going to do experiments because there's still going to be weird new emergent phenomena happening. The third bit is, of course, the same thing, but on ethics. Well, by the point, the point in time when humanity has expanded so far, the different parts will start losing causal contact. At that point, will we have agreed or roughly uh, the overall framework on ethics? Not that we all agree with each other. It might be that we figured out that just like there were 17 wallpaper groups, there are 17 consistent ethical positions you can take. And then people have various opinions about which one they like the most. Or it could be that people are still coming up with ethical systems and the new forms of ethics, and actually we still don't fully agree on what ethics truly is. So these three bets, we're writing up a paper where we're having people take uh, different sides of the bet. It's all about how open-ended is important stuff in the universe. How open-ended is value? Could it ever be that there's an infinite list of possible things to value, and they're all proper values? It's actually right to value many of some of these things. Where is it that yeah, actually there's a finite list? There are five things that all intelligent beings ought to value, and that's it. The rest is personal aesthetics. Now, people have very different intuitions. David Deutsch, who I've been trying to entice into taking the ethics bet versus me, uh, he, uh, no, it's a science bet, actually, that he's, I'm trying to get him to take. And he thinks things are open-ended, very, very strongly open-ended. And it's very fun to argue with him because we both have intuitions about the shape of the space of possible sciences, which is weird because we don't know everything. We just have this based on our very finite sampling of science known to us. So, so would I say your counterpart for that on the ethics part is Robin Hanson? <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, the ethics bit... Is Robin Hanson versus, I forgot who it else it was. So I need to look it up, actually. <laughs> and, and do you think they're conditional upon each other in some way? So that, you know, if, if you knew that one of them was converging, would you say, okay, now the other one is also more likely to converge? Or <laughs> I think ethics is the most independent one. It's, it's interesting because if you're a relativist, you would, of course, say, yeah, well, there is actually no real truth, so it's always open ended. And then you have people like Immanuel Kant saying, no, no, all sufficiently rational agents will converge to my ethical system. Um, but that's very different from the technological underpinnings. And technology and science are linked to each other. Uh, so you could imagine that if technology is always a child of scientific understanding, so if I discover a new scientific principle that allows me to do some new tech stuff, 
then if science is open-ended, we can never be certain that technology will be closed. It might be that, yeah, for the past billion years, nobody has ever invented anything new. But the scientists are finding ever more bizarre states of matter. And sooner or later, one of them is going to turn out to be useful for something. So that is a possibility. Indeed, it could turn out that none of these questions are undecidable in some strict mathematical sense. That actually, physics is really weird. We can never be certain that we're uh, completed. In many ways, I think these bills are always going to be rather flawed. Trying to write a proper paper defining them even is actually a very good philosophical exercise. Not just me reviewing a lot of people with very weird firm opinions, but also trying to refine what do we mean by science? What do we mean by technology? What is a technology really? And in many ways, of course, very really weak and unweak concept the closer you look at them. But that's the fun part. And that's a good because we actually focus you on trying to be exact. In, in fact, Immanuel Kant, in his work, he actually pointed out that the best way of getting people to show their true preferences about probability is to make a bet about That's actually found in his work. He's saying that uh, many people who say they're absolutely certain become way less certain once there is a little bit of gold in the balance. And the funny thing is, 30 pages down the line, he's saying, oh, yes, and I'm willing to accept a bet at any odds that there are intelligent life in the universe. Who have you been able to convince to take those bets? Um, so it's Toby and Peter for the technology bet. Uh, I'm working with the, the, the try to convince the Deutsch to take the science bet, but we need to define it much better. So the way we're having meetings where they bicker quite a lot about that. And I think it's Robin and a friend of Peter's uh, say in the, the politics who's taken the, the ethics. But in many ways, I think it would be fun to have uh, people around uh, the Foresight Institute to join in on these bets. Maybe we should turn them into group bets. We are also trying to formulate it in such a way we can submit them properly to the, the long bets. So that, that also requires that the things actually involve some actual money, etc. Yeah, I mean, that would be totally lovely. I would love to follow up on this. This is an encouragement to everyone here and to try out if you want to raise your hand and then we'll see whether we can do like a very short question round if Anders is still on. Uh, in the chat. Um, okay, I see the first one here by Brad Templeton. Brad, keep it nice and short and sweet. Here you go. Uh, I mean, just history is littered with people believing a field was about to be complete. Has there ever been an example where they were right? I, I think there are areas where we know roughly what we do. I mean, classical mechanics has not fundamentally changed after Hamiltonian mechanics, all the applications. Of, but only by calling it classical mechanics. Yeah, I, I do think that there is actually something fundamental about it. I, I like your question. I don't think I can give super short answer. In fact, it kind of inspires me to go to that part of my book and see if I can put the answer in there. I think the proper answer is not, not strictly, but in, there are some disciplines where I think people did finish stuff uh, and then people realize, yeah, the actual problem is over there anyway. Well, I'd be interested if you found something outside of subfields of mathematics where you can then claim by definition the field is complete because you defined the problem in a way that it's completable. But outside of that, I'm not sure you'll find it. Yeah. And, and the doomsday conjecture is a hilarious example where something discovered that it didn't exist. But that's a weird special case. 
All right. If there's any other short questions, please feel free to raise your hand. Oh, we have another question here, George. I just wanted to ask how we might apply this thought to fungi and mycelium networks in nature and and their progression and your thoughts on that in comparison to humans. That's a good question because we haven't studied fungi very much. <laughs> it's kind of embarrassing that we know so little about the mayor kingdom of life, which is actually doing quite a lot of very important things, whether you're in agriculture thinking about soil over to the, the issues of immunology. And generally, I think it's a good example of a low-hanging uh, fruit of ignorance. There are many relatively simple domains where people haven't been studying it enough. Lesions is another good example. Uh, I like it, it's a symbiosis between an algae and fungi. We, we all heard that in school, except that it turns out that they need bacteria too, which was discovered, I think, about 10 years ago, which ought to have been kind of obvious, but it's, it's a little bit like microbiomes. Yeah, it ought to have been obvious. It wasn't, and it might actually be a pretty major thing. So right now, I don't think I can say that much about fungi because more work is needed. A lot more work is needed. So we are now at 29. I would say I'm going to open up the breakout rooms at just at 30. Uh, but I do want to kind of like give you uh, the chance to close it out uh, with something that you'd like this audience to know. Or if you don't have anything handy, then maybe foreshadow something what we can expect in the really, 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 really long future. Uh, just to kind of expand our uh, horizons a little bit and give us a, a big, big, even a far away carrot to hold on to while we're moving in COVID. So, so uh, first, what have I learned by attempting to write this book? Well, actually trying to write a really broad book is actually a fun thing because almost anything is related and you actually get motivated with stuff. In. And then you start to realize what you need to learn more. So this has been very much of an exploration for me that has shown me that a surprising number of things are like the fungi question. There are these elementary things that we ought to know that seem to matter quite a bit, that very few people have worked very well on. What's the statistical lifetime of civilizations? Or how long does software actually last? There ought to be much better in the knowledge about that than there actually is. So there is a lot of these low-hanging fruits of ignorance that we ought to be working on. And we should probably try to collect lists of these uh, questions uh, in a better way, because there are very few good repositories. Uh, whenever students come to me and ask, so what should I work on? If I'm lucky, I've just been uh, bashing my head against something interesting and I can tell them about it. But quite often, I, of course, forgotten the 20 things that I realized this is super important and somebody ought to work on. Hopefully, my book can at least contain a long list of questions I haven't been able to answer. So turning to what have I learned in writing the book that is relevant for the long-term future? And I think the biggest surprise for me was Matter is so darn cool. So we in Western civilization, we have this saying kind of mere matter. Oh, it's information, it's knowledge, it's energy. All these things are really, really amazing and harmful. But it actually turns out that the behavior of matter itself is really complex. Indeed, it looks like we actually don't have a full theory about states of matter. In some directions, it looks like an open-ended problem. And we certainly don't know if it actually is a finite number. Indeed, there are some good reasons to think this might be open-ended in a very complicated way. After all, biology is a particular kind of matter that does very funky stuff. And that leads to the final point that 
we are a phase transition of matter. We are a way of the, an organization of matter that can actually organize other matter on larger and larger scales. And this seems to be a phys- some, uh, an interesting form of physics, basically. Can we describe the phase transitions that can, matter can do in the universe? And it seems that it's probably important to bring in questions about intelligence and life and self-replicating systems. Because without those parts of the description of what matter does in the universe, we're probably missing all the quite central thing. Yes, normal matter gravitates and builds stars and uh, forms gases. But it might also be in spaceship and reorganize galaxies into the shapes based on ideas the matter has. So I think actually understanding matter is way more funky than it sounds like when you get introduced to the states of matter or solid state physics. There is much more to be discovered about matter itself. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>